previously on Storyological. <laughs> Emma and I, for the first time in our short time together, are sharing a table of contents in Volume H of Shelf Heroes. Shelf Heroes is an indie magazine put out by this wonderful man, deeply passionate about movies, named Ben Smith. And he's putting out a volume for each letter of the alphabet, full of art and essays and poems that people have made in response to some movie that, whose name begins with whatever letter of the alphabet we are currently at. M and I are in volume H, as I said. Uh, I wrote about the host, uh, which somehow led to me writing about my dad and death and family. And I made a comic about Honey and about the reason why I love basically every dance movie that has ever been made. Uh, you can find out more about that at shelfheroes.com or your local BFI the British Film Institute. <laughs> Do you ever get that vague despondency? Hundo P. It blows in with the autumn winds. Is it seasonal for you? Certainly on days like today where the clocks change and so it starts to get dark real early. And in particular on a Sunday afternoon, maybe it comes from that going back to school feeling, you know, where I would go back to boarding school on a Sunday evening and it would be full of that end of summer, end of freedom kind of sadness, but also full of the kind of blankness of a Sunday evening that was consumed entirely by driving across the country in order to say goodbye to my family. I definitely have had the end of summer feeling during school time. Uh, there was attached to a very particular commercial that used to come on for a brand of lemonade the commercial was always about the the last bit of summer light fading and how you needed to enjoy the last bit of country time lemonade that you could while the summer was still in session and the imagery would be of children racing across the field as the sun set and the leaves, there would be a little rustle that would just kind of hint of how they were going to change soon. Uh, and I still think of that commercial when I think about the summer turning into autumn. In general, I find autumn invigorating, much like I find winter invigorating. I, I understand that people have a thing that is called sad, a seasonal affective disorder. It's not something that I've ever, really ever encountered. A little bit until I was in England, where the light really does change. But see, I don't think it's the weather in England. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's, it's the weather that causes seasonal affective disorder for me. In you think England. it's an upbeat personality surrounding you? Um, I think, as often is the case, I think people's reaction to external events uh, is what affects me more than the external event. Yeah, I agree with uh, that. It's not always a particularly human look to have that say if your if your parent dies you're much more likely to be affected by other people being sad about your parent dying than you are to be affected by your parent dying at least until you get up and do the eulogy and then you have a cry for a few like 45 seconds and then then it's done mm -hmm. and i think that's one reason why i really like art which is a very broad statement but i mean in order for me to process my feeling of the event i need to have time to process it whereas to process somebody else's feeling of the event is instantaneous right art is all about other people's reactions to 
events and ideas. But for me, is is meditation, right? It gives you time to experience your feelings about other people's feelings. Other people may not get that. They may experience a movie and just experience or think about those people on screen or having emotions. But for me, it's like being in a, in a lab. It's a controlled situation where emotions happen mm-hmm. and you get to study them and think about your own feelings. Again, it's not necessarily the most human look to have as a person. Uh, if I go to like my back porch of my childhood home and sit and write a eulogy for my dad, I'm deliberately making art out of the moment. I'm mm-hmm. arranging things such that I have time to both create feelings in me and then move them around and look at them and i find the idea of stories as as emotional labs interesting and i i kind of if i place myself in that metaphor i feel like i'm in the lab i'm not oftentimes outside studying it i am overwhelmed by it like which is kind of why i can't watch horror films i'm too frightened by them i'm you know right scared into my core and why sometimes a bleak story can be really hard because it leaves that that trail of fog behind in my brain that I find it really hard to clear. Do you ever feel that way about humor? Like if you're, if you're watching a stand-up comic, do you feel lost inside of that space in the same way? Yeah, lost in a wonderful way. Because my favorite comics are people like, say, Mike Babiglia, right, who is a storyteller who he's not telling joke 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 he is creating a universe for you to walk into and notice and understand in new ways and i am absorbed in a deep manner by by that creation Mm. and and love being able to spend time walking around in it like this world yeah yeah i wonder if it's if horror movies or bleak stories are difficult for you, in part for the reason why sometimes I don't like them. Sometimes I don't like those stories because they don't seem to possess any laboratory feel to me. There's no perspective, right? That's kind of one of the telltale signs of a, of a particular type of horror movie, uh, especially kind of jump scare, mm-hmm. slasher horror movie, and a, and a certain kind of bleak story where it feels like the the story is so wedded to a specific emotional experience of reality that all it can do is hit that same note over and over again. And so it'd be like a laboratory setting where you're doing an experiment uh, and all you know to do is shock the rat mm-hmm. over and over again with the same voltage uh, and write down what happens. You don't really know why you're doing it except that uh, clearly it has an effect on the rat mm-hmm. and you were like oh well let's see um, a, I don't know if that metaphor is great it's but. not it totally works right it's a terrible experimental design because you're not moving any variables to understand the interactions and behavior right yes which stories like Discworld stories that possess an overabundance of perspective one might say <laughs> uh tend to feel very mix-mashed in their use of genres because it's like the writer is doing what you're saying of changing variables. They're like, what if we took this part of a horror movie but mm. this part of a detective story? As a, as a wise friend once told me, one way to think about genres that is useful is that when people decide that a genre exists, they tend to mean 
readers prefer or writers tend to want to create a very specific emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So if you as a writer, like Terry Pratchett, like, I'll take a bit of this genre, a bit of this. You're like, what if I take this emotion and put it next to this emotion and put it in this situation that people assume will create this emotion? But what if there's a different feeling? This is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Uh... My pick for this week is Dusk Before the Fireworks by Dorothy Parker, in case you didn't, you know, guess. Yeah, Dotty P special. Uh, yeah. Uh, this story, there is a woman named Catherine, and there is a man named Hobie. Uh, they are in Hobie's apartment, having what looks like might be a very pleasant evening, very swell, very peaceful. But then the phone rings. And rings again, and rings again, and it annoys the woman. And that's the story. <laughs> uh, you see, the, the uh -huh. people on the other end of the line are other women that Hobie is having relations with. Uh, this was the swinging 20s. You might not know, but there used to be a time in the world where women and men might date each other and also date other people while dating them. And everybody would know it was happening. And it would be complicated. Mm. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't seem like she's that keen on it. it. Seems like maybe she would prefer it that he wasn't dating Catherine. Yeah, it's possible. It, it, yeah, it is possible. Uh, and one of the reasons why I picked the story is that it does something that I think Dorothy Parker does very well, which is she takes a premise that seems slight and she imbues it with equal amounts of tragedy and comedy that often deals with one person's desperate, desperate need for someone else to validate them in one manner or another. Uh, people misplace themselves quite a bit in Dorothy Parker's fiction. Here's an exchange from Dusk Before the Fireworks. Guess who I'd rather be right this minute than anybody in the whole world, Catherine said. Who, Hobie said. Me, she said. I love that you've picked that that exchange because they neither of these people think that anyone else is as important in life as they are. It, they are self-interested and are part of a societal structure that thinks that some people are better than others. And I love what she's done is kind of laid out this story that looks at that from all these different angles you you know on the surface you've got kit desperate to be valued and validated by hobie desperate to be the one person he's dating the one person he tells is wonderful um but hobie doesn't really feel like that about her he's seeing plenty of women and you know but he's kind of making these empty reassurances and then from the other perspective you've got Kit describing some people as total second raters. Oh, you know, these second rate people, the, the people that make so much trouble. Like, she doesn't value other people. And so she's kind of like in the center of this vortex of nobody valuing anybody else. And she is both the perpetrator and the receiver of this behavior. And I, I love that that is. You know, she wants to be herself because she can't see the value in being anybody else. I certainly see in a lot of Dorothy Parker's stories, uh, as in Dust Before the Fireworks, that 
There is a, a selflessness on display that is built entirely on narcissism. A lot of what people characterize as insecurity or low self-esteem, at least as I came to understand it in myself and other people I've been close to, uh, is a kind of narcissism because really you're entirely focused on how other people see you. Even if, mm -hmm. even if it's a low opinion of yourself you're imagining them having or that you're having about yourself, it is you that mm -hmm. you are only thinking about. Another reason why I think I responded to this story is there's a certain kind of story that is, that is just two people talking. There's movies like Before Sunrise and there's classic short stories, uh, like there's a Hemingway story, Hills Like White Elephants, and a Joyce Carol Oates story called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Almost every Asimov story ever to, to really? old, old professors sitting in a room talk, solving a mystery. Are those stories entirely like real time, like in dialogue, or does it does he use that as a device to go into? Oftentimes, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, it, the story starts with one man arriving at another man's house where they to you know research some esoteric mm. principle that will help the first man solve a mystery. Yeah, I would. <clears throat> I hear you, and those sound not good to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, they not certainly because... look, they certainly uh, are less appealing when I read them now as a as an adult than right. when I read them as a child. I was gonna say not because they they themselves don't have value, but they sound like a really uh, uh, what's the name of that Ewan McGregor show? The Long Way Down, Long Way Right. It sounds like a real long way round to writing an essay. Right, yeah, that's pretty didactic. Uh, and I think I love these sorts of stories uh, for the same reason I love Dark Chocolate, which is to say they kind of dispense what is inessential and tend to present you with just the bittersweet heart of things, which in Before Sunrise, one of the characters just says, which is they think that if there's any kind of magic in the world, it's just the space between two people trying to understand each other. And in Dorothy Parker's stories and in the Hemingway and Joyce Carol Oates stories, all of which have a slightly less warm shimmer to them than before sunrise. That magic is really fraught and really crackly. There's a lot of electricity there that that wounds because it doesn't feel like those people in those stories are trying to understand each other. It doesn't feel like in Dust Before the Fireworks, um, Kit and Hobie are working at understanding <laughs> what is between them. Right. It feels like as you put it, that they each are so involved with their own experience of themselves or so involved with someone else's experience of them that they can't find each other. Hobie, for example, says that, that great thing where he's just like, I, I just say whatever comes easiest to me that I think will make people happy because mm -hmm. that's more convenient for me. Right, and why can't you be this way, Kit? It's more. It's essentially because it's more convenient and pleasant for me. I'm not actually interested in who you are or what you actually want. I just want to see this kind of behavior through this kind of particular window into you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about it. If you if you put it in those words, that's that's all Kit is too, and that's what makes them such a, a great pair. All, Kit wants Hobie to treat her in a certain way because that's the that way she'll feel better about herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like these arbitrary ex external markers mm -hmm. for happiness they have or for 
their own sense of self and comfort have been assigned. And it's like, oh, well, here's my list. Uh, unfortunately, it matches nothing on your list. So how are we going to bash this out between us? Yeah. One thing I wondered was how Hobie treats the men in his life. Right? I wonder if he treats the men in the same way. And if so, what is the impact on them? Right, Because the it's in the 20s. Kit depends in her, from what I take from this story, in her circle of friends, her social standing. She relies on Hobie's attention and possible future expectations for her own standing, for her own sense of self. But presumably if he's got, I don't know, war buddies or club buddies or whatever, they're not depending on him in any way. And so I wonder if they, uh, the phrase of the time, they rub along together fine and nobody, none of them have any expectations of each other that are unfulfilled because they, you know, they know what they want from other people, which is, or from other people, which is very little. Or they know what they want to divulge of themselves, which is very little. So they have the same expectations of the men around them. Something I, I really adored in this story is the way the power switches back and forth between them. She just uses this telephone as a way to have act breaks, really, <laughs> that that cause change. But like the telephone rings and Kit has one reaction, which is, whatever, go, go talk to them, it's fine. Stuff happens. Telephone rings again. Now she has a different reaction. She runs away and hides, but then tries to pretend it doesn't matter. But then it's like, oh, actually, it matters quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And then the telephone rings again after some stuff happens. And now she has a different reaction. I am always in love with people who can use the, the simplest little devices to tinker around and reveal feelings. I, I remember listening to the the people who did the music for La La Land saying, you know, all we really want from our score is to make sure that there is no single feeling that lasts for more than like a second or two, because that's not what humans are like. They're like humans, like they have emotions and they're contradictory and we want the music to bounce around and crash emotions together. And that's, that's what I adore about stories is the way the feelings like here, you, you can't really sit and a feeling with any of the characters for too long. They're fighting it too much and they're fighting each other. Right, they're, they're fighting their feelings so hard. The, this is a, it's a beautiful perspective on the different levels of feeling, thinking and saying. Like there's what people actually feel, what people allow themselves to acknowledge that they're feeling and then what they actually say out loud and try to communicate to the other person, and then what that other person hears and responds to. And what this story does so beautifully is just put on display how different all of those things are. And you can see that Kit in particular is so desperate for Hobie's validation. And, and to be fair, does directly ask for it on a couple of occasions. But she's unable or unwilling to say like why it's important or to break it down in any way or to like help him understand what it means she's she's only like allowing them to skate across the surface of that desire hmm. but yet when you read it you feel all of the the swell beneath it oh yeah 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 that and that, that goes back to to what i wanted to say about how you you know, you were thinking about when she says me in that moment, who would I rather be 
and you, you know, you heard it a bit, maybe entirely, as her saying me, because she thought that was the only person that mattered. And I heard it differently. At least I, I heard other notes in there, notes that I felt like the story called back to a couple of times. There's a passage during the first phone call when Dorothy writes this about Catherine. She went back and settled on the sofa. She essayed whistling softly, but the issuing sounds would not resemble the intended tune, and she felt, though interested, vaguely betrayed. Then she looked about the dusk-filled room. Then she pondered her fingernails, bringing each bent hand close to her eyes, and could find no fault. Then she smoothed her skirt along her legs and shook out the chiffon frills at her wrists. Then she spread her little handkerchief on her knee and with exquisite care traced the Catherine embroidered its script across one of its corners. Then she gave it all up and did nothing but listen. And there she's listening to the, to the phone call. That, that scene stuck with me because it felt like on the surface, it's like, oh, Catherine only cares about herself. She's looking at her nails. She's trying to, you know, to, to focus on who she is in a way that says that's all that matters. But I found it a really interesting choice. At the end of the story, after the third phone call, Catherine leaves. And Dorothy's like, I would now go and be kind of in Hobie's point of view. I'll just sit with Hobie, talk about what he's doing. And I thought, why? Why? Um, and that scene came back to me about how she's tracing Catherine. And then she just loses it. You know, she just listens to what Hobie is saying. And I thought, ah, oh, there's there's the the tragedy. There's the... Uh, the selflessness that is narcissistic, that, you know, maybe she thinks that she's the only person that matters, but she doesn't matter that much to her. She can't hold on to her. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because you could read the way Dorothy lets go of her point of view at the end as a kind of final erasure of that character's identity. You could also read it as Catherine has escaped and will now, she's no longer embedded in Hobie's life. But it's hard it's not not it's it's interesting to me to read it as though Dorothy has had Catherine struggling with her identity throughout, and that moment of vanishing at the end is ambiguous for that reason. You're not sure if Catherine has disappeared because she's lost herself again or she's disappeared because she's found herself. Mm-hmm. She probably doesn't know either right. That's what I love. She ends it with that image where she says Catherine was different from all the other women because the mm-hmm. other women either did one of two things. They either slammed the door when they left mm-hmm. or they left it wide open. Right. But she kind of left it in between. Yeah. My pick this week is Big Blonde by Dorothy Parker. This one was written in 1929. It's the story of Hazel Morse and her disintegration. Uh, she's a former shop model and spends most of her time flattering men with her presence and her laughter hanging out, going out to bars. Uh, We see her married, divorced, and then sort of swaying through a roster of men she has the declining amount of interest in until her drinking can no longer dull the pain and she attempts to kill herself. So it's a comedy. (laughs) Like so many of the Dorothy Parker stories that I read in this collection, it is, it is, funny in a kind of cruel way but it is also deeply bleak deeply sad and it takes you on this kind of 
journey of understanding Hazel. So my feelings about Hazel ebbed and flowed across the story. At first, I felt like she was set up in such a way that I disliked her or judged her. You know, she's described... Uh, Hazel prided herself upon her small feet and suffered for her vanity, boxing them in snub-toed, high-heeled slippers of the shortest bearable size. The curious things about her were her hands, strange terminations to the flabby white arms splattered with pale tan spots, long, quivering hands with deep, convex nails. She should not have disfigured them with little jewels. And I'm like, any character that is introduced with the with that kind of language is not upset is not set up for me to empathize with them initially and yet she takes us on this journey of disintegration with hazel and i really i really begin to feel for her even though hazel does not grow or become more self-aware or less awful but i begin to just feel so bad for her and the the lack of options she seems to have in her life. And so by the end of it, when she attempts to kill herself, I, I, Dorothy creates this, this ambivalence in me. On the one hand, I'm like, oh God, that's terrible that she tries to kill herself. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh, just literally another step in the kind of passive life that you've lived and that you took you chose a way to try and end your life that was just easily accessible. You didn't have to do much in order to access the tools. It didn't wasn't uh, a hard choice to make. And also it turned out to be ineffective, like so many other of the non-choices in your life. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't immediately think I'm not going to sympathize with somebody because they're described as... Um, less than an ideal of beauty so i i read uh big blonde basically a horror story which also reminded me of tolstoy in the matrix uh because i really thought you'd said tolstoy in the matrix then and i was like wait (laughs) did i miss that part maybe um because it has that feel of a certain kind of uh um, horror story where the hero has this dimming but dawning awareness that something isn't right about the world, but everyone around them denies it and says, no, no, everything's fine. You're crazy. Be quiet. Let's just, let's just go on about things. Because Hazel uh, often talks about sad things in the world. Occasionally she will remember to talk about what's sad about her life, but it's hard for her to focus on that. And other people around her, if she talks about herself, will say, everybody's got their troubles. Shut up. Be a good sport. And if she talks about what's wrong with the world, they'll say well, just shut up and be a good sport because why should we think about what's wrong with the world? What a stupid thing to do with our time. Uh, How would we have time for anything else? Yeah. That has echoes of, like I'm watching the second season of Hannibal right now, which I was really leaning into its its gothicness and that it has the main character, Will, trapped in a mental asylum, certain that Hannibal Lecter is not a good person and probably... Uh, a serial killer and we agree with him uh but no one else thinks that he's sane he's alone uh and that is a deeply difficult place to be 
the idea that, you know, you read Hazel and you're like, oh, you keep making self-destructive choices. You're, you're being awful to other people. It's all complicated by the fact that, you know, if you're constantly told that what you think and feel does not matter, it is, it is a difficult, kindness is a difficult mindset to maintain. Interest in what other people are feeling is difficult to maintain. And uh, the reason why it reminded me of Tolstoy is that there's a Joe Wright who made an adaptation of uh, Pride and Prejudice, also made an adaptation of Anna Karenina, and he set the adaptation entirely in a theater. The sets that change from scene to scene are literal sets, and uh, he's literally made all the world a stage, and everyone's playing their role. And there's a feeling when Anna Karenina breaks from what's supposed to happen that everybody there is like, just stick to the script, lady. This is the only script we know. This is how we're going to get through this. Read your lines. Don't try to do anything different. That You get the same desperate desire that I love that we feel the desperation from the other characters in the story too, not just Hazel. Right. Their desperation for things to go on as they understand them. Uh, unfortunately, uh, unlike Neo in the Matrix, she, she can't really... She can't make that choice to to take the red pill. She can't entirely wake up to what's sad in herself or the world, but she can't entirely go to sleep either. Yeah. She's stuck. I I picture Hazel mm-hmm. in her internal existence as like a kind of hovering, glowing polyp with hundreds and thousands of tendrils reaching out into the world, looking for connection. And gradually, as you say, these are all chopped off. Don't talk about this. Don't be like that. Don't say this. Don't go there. You know, even stuff your toes into into tiny little shoes that don't aren't big enough for you. Constrain yourself in every way. And so instead of reaching out into the world, those tendrils turn back and kind of cut into herself. It's like that, you know, depression being anger turned in on yourself. Like her, her isolation is that, that searching turned back and yet finding that she's too afraid or ill-equipped to look inside herself either. And so she's stuck in this kind of amorphous zone with nothing, no one to connect with externally, no ability to connect with herself internally and her only way of surviving it is to begin to use alcohol to dull that pain of that existence. There's a James Baldwin quote that my sister sent me that said more or less that it is difficult uh, for one to learn how to love if one doesn't know how to be loved. And it is difficult to know how to see without being seen. Now the love one, I've heard various kinds, various plays on that a lot, which I feel like feeds in a bit to the idea that the best thing I can do for other people is is learn how important I am as a person and love myself, which is kind of true. It's not not true. The scene is also complicated, but I just loved it. There was a, I love how Baldwin put that second in the quote, because generally whatever you end on is more important. And ending on something other than love is always, always interesting. You're like, oh, this is more important. And I really, something I loved about the way Parker was playing with how Hazel sees herself or doesn't is in the narration while we get the description of Hazel as sad and we get her bleakness, you know, Hazel often refers to it just as the blues. And we get a lot of physical description of Hazel like you described. But it feels like when the stories 
most clear about who Hazel is is when it's describing other entities in the story. There's a passage where Dorothy describes uh, other women at this bar as uh, that it appears by Emma hopping in her seat. She has something to say about. Uh, we'll come back to Emma in just a second. I'll just say the other thing. We'll come back to Emma in just a second. It sounds like I'm on the radio. Uh, <laughs> so we'll we'll go live to Emma in a second. But I'll say the and then there's another bit where there's there's a couple of scenes where Hazel describes her sorrow about the way horses in the street are treated. That you know is how she feels in herself. This is the thing that bugs me sometimes when people seem to demonstrate a great deal of care for animals because it seems like it's just evidence that they don't know how to care about themselves or other humans. And so they project it all onto these beasts of uh, convenient. Beasts of convenience. Yeah, an onto these phrase. beasts of convenience, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you just it's just sad. It's just really beautifully sad that... Uh, this is where Hazel and us, the reader, where we meet is in this uh, beating of horses. I was hoping because that was one of the paragraphs I pulled out that I wanted to read. The women at Jimmy's looked remarkably alike. And this was curious for through feuds, removals and opportunities of more profitable contacts. The personnel of this group changed constantly, yet always newcomers resembled those whom they replaced. They were all big women and stout, broad of shoulder and abundantly breasted, with faces thickly clothed in soft, high-coloured flesh. They laughed loud and often, showing opaque and lustreless teeth like squares of crockery. Um, and I love that both for what you were saying, like that's, that's partly where we come to see Hazel most clearly as one of these interchangeable women, uh, and also for the kind of sharp language that is used. What does it mean when you're part of a social circle where everybody is interchangeable? It means that whatever is inside people is completely unvalued. It means skating on the surface. And it reflects the kind of society that she's living in in the 20s where women are valued less than men. They're interesting only in terms of their appearance and the marriage that they've made. And once a marriage is unmade or never made, they have little to offer. They are, once they arrive at that position of separation and middle age, there's nothing less. And she's assimilated that view of herself and submerges herself in this group of women. And when I, you know, when I read that, when I understood that submerging to be happening, yeah, I, I felt the way that I felt for that, well, the way that she felt for that poor horse. When I was reading the story again, uh, you know, as, as, as I often do for Storylogical, I read it, I write down my thoughts, and then I read it again to see how the story fits or doesn't fit with the thoughts I have and think about it. One of the things I discovered in in the story the second time through is how the narrator makes a point of saying that when Hazel is watching that horse be whipped in the street, that there are these other people around watching with interest. And there's a point she makes at the end after Hazel has attempted to commit suicide, where again, 
the story just happily leaves Hazel's point of view behind for a minute mm-hmm. and goes to someone else. And the narrator describes how those people who discover Hazel's uh, incapacitated body, how they kind of had the hope that it was serious. Like, they, you know, they, they kind of hoped that it was really bad and they would go get the doctor and that she wouldn't wake up and be fine by the time they got the doctor back. That answered a different question I had, not the one, why do we read these stories, but why did Parker have this character attempt suicide, fail at committing suicide, and end on the note where uh, Hazel is just like, sure, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great. And one of the things I thought was, well, that experience you had, Emma, a feeling for Hazel the way Hazel felt for the horse, we're the spectators in this case. We are watching Hazel suffering. How much inside of us are hoping that she really goes off the deep end and either actually dies, because that will feel like a resolution to us, or acts out and hurts somebody else. And I feel like there's something something there and that Dorothy gives us this thing to watch, but then pulls back from giving us any kind of resolution. I see, I see it more like... I see it more like she is giving me the tools to do for myself what hazel cannot do for herself right hazel cannot look at that horse and understand she is in that position i read this story and it's like this may be me at my uh least emotionally intelligent but reading stories like this i feel like give me the tools to recognize pain and despair in myself in my life in my friends and and give me an empathy for it that might otherwise I might otherwise have glossed over in the manner of Hazel. It's the same reason I'm glad I took ecstasy. You know, it gave me access to that feeling, that experience. Like, you know, these these experiences mark out my mark out the the possibilities in an emotional range that otherwise through fear or through just lack of experience, I may not have understood to be there and therefore may not have traveled to myself. I think that is an important distinction to say that you can learn from this. Partly, yes, because Dorothy is being artful and giving you things to hold to. But there's nothing to say that somebody else wouldn't read this story and just think, oh, this is so sad. Mm. Just like somebody watching or, a horse whip. Like you yeah. have made a choice or made a made an attempt in your past life to not just have access to experience, not just experience things, but to learn from them. And whether or not you act, that's a that's another step. Like I think that in the story, Hazel has access to these experiences. She may not have access to understanding, but she does feel these things. She just doesn't know what to do with it. Mm. Yeah. She's left alone inside herself and in the world that she lives in. Thanks for listening. Uh, We uh, only talked about Dorothy Parker stories and we didn't even talk about all of her stories. (laughs) And there are other stories written by other people. So if you have stories that you love that you want us to discuss, you think we should read, please hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. If you want to follow Emma on Twitter, she is at EG Kosh. If you want to follow Chris, he's at Kuvols. If you enjoyed this episode 
and we hope you have, consider going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review that not only gives us a great sense of validation, it also helps people find us, which is nice. Um, and if you have enjoyed this episode, we hope you will consider supporting us on Patreon. If you support us at the $3 mark, you will get every month a newsletter where Chris reviews some part of everything in the world. And of course, uh, for show notes, links to past episodes, such as interviews with writers like Alyssa Wong or Sophia Samatar, along with gifts of an appropriate and generally possibly inappropriate nature. Who knows? Maybe even sometimes they're mean. I don't know. I'm just making observations over here. Just making connections. Uh, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com Thanks for listening. Happy reading. <laughs>